Earlier on this year, there was some controversy surrounding the American talk show host, Ellen DeGeneres. Here she is. It's her habit to end every show by smiling sweetly into the camera and telling the audience to be kind. There's a whole line of merchandise to go with this too. You can buy a Be Kind hat and you can even try to kill coronavirus by wearing Be Kind face masks. This all looked so lovely until earlier this year, people who worked for her production company started to talk about a culture of bullying and cruelty behind the scenes of the show. It raises the possibility that she has made a career out of looking kind while a lot of uglier stuff is lurking in the background? Or is she actually genuinely kind and people are gunning for her unfairly because they're jealous? Who knows? But either way, someone somewhere is being very unkind. Well, today we're beginning a new series thinking about kindness. I want to take us on a journey by looking at a wonderfully rich Hebrew word that almost needs a whole sentence to do it justice. Hesed describes the kind of tenacious love that will never let you go. It conveys the kind of kindness that is often undeserved. One writer, for example, tries to sum the word hesed up with this simple definition. He says this, when the person from whom I have a right to expect nothing gives me everything. Hesed then is a word that describes astonishing kindness. And I want us to start our journey today very simply by saying that this hesed is at the very heart of the character of God himself. The passage that we read a few moments ago in Exodus is very old and very important. I don't think it would be an exaggeration to say that the rest of the Bible actually stands on the deep foundation that we find here. Moses has an encounter with God in which God himself describes who he really is. This passage is God according to God. And incredibly, God uses the word hesed to describe himself, not just once, but twice. And as we'll see in a minute, timing is everything. And it's very significant that God, God says these things. God tells us what he is like at a time when everything had fallen apart. I think it's precisely because God reveals his goodness here so brightly in the darkest of times that these words from his own mouth echo so powerfully across the centuries of troubled human history. These words end up, for example, being quoted over and over again in the Old Testament. Whenever God's people found themselves groping about in the darkness, more than that, when they themselves had made a mess of things, it is as if all they could do was to keep coming back 
to this solid foundation that had been laid by God when things were bleak. The encounter that Moses has here with God was their basic theology 101. If you didn't know these things about God, you didn't know anything. If ever they were tempted to think that God was some kind of horrible tyrant, this very passage would remind them that God's astonishing kindness is what makes him so unlike any other God. And that because of that, he is exactly what they need. Now, I want, I want us to spend most of our time today than looking at God's own words in Exodus chapter 34. But to appreciate the impact, we need some brief context. So let me quickly summarize the build-up to the climax in chapter 34 by skipping over chapters 32 and 33. Chapter 32 is a heartbreaking low in the Bible where, where a dream is shattered. The second half of the book of Genesis and the book of Exodus are all about God forming a people for himself. Hundreds of years earlier, God had made promises to Abraham that his descendants would be a glorious nation. And by this point, there are possibly over a million people here that God has powerfully rescued from slavery in Egypt, and he's now bringing them to the land of Canaan as he had promised Abraham. Three months after leaving Egypt in Exodus chapter 19, this massive group of people arrives at Mount Sinai in the desert. This becomes a very important place because here God establishes a covenant with these people, his people. And this is not just a functional legal agreement. This is, in a sense, a love story. And you could say that this covenant that God makes is almost like a marriage. God tells them how much he loves them and that he has carried them on eagles' wings all these years. They've experienced God's love and care as he has rescued, protected and provided for them. And now here at Sinai, God gives them his good laws and tells them that they themselves will be his treasured possession as they give their hearts to him in loving obedience. Just like at a wedding, the people respond enthusiastically, we will, of course we will. And as a sort of wedding present, God gives them two stone tablets. Sometimes in books, these tablets are pictured with the Ten Commandments on five on each side. But actually, in the ancient world, when a covenant was established, the two parties would get a copy of the covenant each. So in this case, God gives to Moses two copies of their wedding-like covenant on stone in God's own handwriting. And the scene is set for this beautiful relationship between God and his people to blossom and flourish. But the dream is shattered as Moses comes down Mount Sinai with these precious tablets in his hands. 
he's stunned to find that the bride in this wedding has effectively already run off with another man. Concerned that Moses had been up the mountain for too long and led by Moses' brother Aaron, the people decide to make their own god. Perhaps they remember the animal gods they left behind in Egypt and they decide to make a gold-plated calf and worship that. And this marriage is over almost before it's begun. After hundreds of years of God's care, they betray the God who loves them inside six weeks. And the narrative in chapter 32 and 33 of Exodus is then brilliant in creating suspense. We're drawn into wondering, what will God now do? What's going to become of Israel? Will God abandon them? Is the promise to bring them to their own land over before they've even set off? And in the face of this tragic failure, Moses, as, as their leader, is a broken man. In chapter 32 and verse 19, Moses smashes the precious tablets on the ground. It's a symbol of a broken covenant. And Moses seems to swing between love and frustration and anger and helplessness. His brother was a coward. The people are running wild. And the God who had lovingly brought them this far is threatening not to go with them anymore. And Moses is frightened for the people he has led and whose dreams now lay shattered in the desert sand. The tension and distance and the uncertainty continue into chapter 33 and eventually Moses comes to God with a heavy heart. Moses' brokenness turns him toward God and he gradually begins to open up his worst fears and he seeks God's reassurance. And in verse 18, Moses finally blurts out his deepest wish. At rock bottom, surrounded by the broken shards of betrayal and failure, Moses cries out, oh God, show me your glory. In this moment, Moses is not even asking for solutions. What Moses longs for in his desperate need, more than anything, is to be satisfied by a glimpse of the glory of God. He yearns for God himself to be the solution. This is a longing for something and someone bigger than himself, bigger than shattered dreams. But this desperate plea is not a cry of escapism. What Moses longs for here is not the emotional illusion of some kind of mystical experience. What Moses longs for here is the solid reality of seeing and knowing the glory of the living God. Oh God, 
I can't go on unless I know you. We as a people can't go on unless you come with us. And so towards the end of chapter 33, God promises to tenderly shield Moses with his hand in the cleft of a rock so that Moses will get a glimpse of God without being overwhelmed. But I want you to notice here, it's not what Moses will see that is emphasised, it's what he will hear. In verse 19 of chapter 33, God says, I will proclaim my name to you. That idea of proclaiming is what we might call preaching, proclamation. So here God gives Moses a front row seat and preaches to him. Imagine that. Tomorrow, Moses, while being carefully shielded by God, will hear a sermon from God himself. I wonder whether Moses slept that night. No wonder Exodus 34 verse 4 tells us that Moses went up Mount Sinai early with two new tablets in his hands. And so we come to some of the most important words in all scripture that describe the magnificence of God. Moses' glimpse of God here becomes an answer to the question that humans have asked all down the ages. Who is God and what is he like? But this moment is more like Mount Everest in a sense than Mount Sinai. This is a towering moment of affirmation and revelation from God. Are you holding your breath? Look with me at chapter 34 and verse 5. At the very darkest moment in the story, having been betrayed by the people he so dearly loves, the Lord comes down in the cloud and stands there with Moses and proclaims his name. This is not someone's wild speculation about God. This is not the people's fanciful imagination about what kind of animal could represent God. This is God himself graciously revealing who he is. And Moses is about to discover that God is even more magnificent than he thought he was. Forty years earlier, God had met Moses at a bush that was on fire in the desert, and there God had told Moses his name. This time, God reveals his character. Look with me then at Exodus chapter 34 and verses 6 and 7, and let's hear God preach, proclaim his name. Firstly, God says, he is compassionate. That word is a, is a parental word that conveys something of tender sympathy. 
One writer tells a story of how he came home after a long day and in the evening his young child came out of their bedroom after bedtime and his instinct was to be cross and speak quite sharply, go back to bed, until the little one said, with tears in his eyes, but I'm wet. And as a dad, his heart melted. That is something of the kind of tender regard that God has for his creatures. Psalm 103 says that as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. God cares about our situations. He's gentle with our weaknesses. His heart is drawn to help us when we're in need. He's compassionate. Secondly, God tells us here that he is gracious. That means that God does things that are not deserved. It's in his nature to, to do things that go beyond what might be expected. He grants his favour to those who are not worthy of it. This is a God who gives, not because of what we're like, but because that's what he is like. He is wonderfully and surprisingly gracious. Thirdly, he is slow to anger. It's true, isn't it, that those who are compassionate and gracious will obviously not be easy to provoke to anger. God has great patience, even with those who are quick to rebel. He's not someone who flies off the handle in a temper. God is not marked by impatience and knee-jerk reactions. He's calm and measured. He's not trigger-happy or bloodthirsty. God is reluctant to act against his creation, even when we're rebellious. God waits a long time to give sinners opportunity to repent. He is slow to anger. And fourthly, we finally get to the word hesed. It's translated here as love. And God says that he abounds in it or he overflows with it. God is rich in loving kindness. He has hesed in huge, great, big spades. This is, a, this is a quality, this is part of who he is. And hesed overflows and pours out of him naturally without tiring him or diminishing him. Fifthly, God is abounding in faithfulness. Some translations here have the word truth. And there is a sense, isn't there, that God is true in the sense of being faithful. Every word that comes from his mouth is reliable. He's utterly trustworthy. God is never deceitful or manipulative. His faithfulness endures despite the fickleness of his people. 
God always follows through on his promises. He never backtracks. His love is therefore loyal and boundless. Hesed is loving kindness without limits. The next uh, sentence says that God maintains Hesed. Hesed must be important to God because it's the only trait here that he uses twice. And not only then does God overflow with Hesed, in verse 7 we hear that God also maintains this Hesed over the long term across generations. So this this characteristic, in other words, is not a flash in the pan that's here for a moment and then gone. And the word maintain has the idea within it of protecting and guarding something to keep it going. We, we have an auger in our kitchen at home that is now very old. In the summer, we turn it off because it gets too hot. But about this time of year, it starts to get cold and the auger, it's time to turn the auger back on. But it needs coaxing. It's a gas one. And once the pilot light is on, you have to be very careful to keep it on. If you turn the burner up too quick, the full flame comes on with a whoosh and blows the pilot light out. So you have to put it on level one for 20 minutes, let things warm up, and then coax it up to two for another 20 minutes. And sometimes I've laid on the kitchen floor for, for a long time just to keep the precious pilot light on until the system is back up and running and everything's working. God's hesed is something that he guards and protects and keeps fresh and maintains. God is wonderfully rich in loving kindness and he maintains it in the long term so that it never goes out. And lastly for today, God forgives. The word that God uses here to speak of forgiveness is it has the sense of carrying or lifting a burden. Forgiveness means then that God comes to us and takes the burden of our sins off our shoulders. He carries them. It's as if he takes the weight of them off us. He pays the debt for them. He absorbs the cost of them. Rather than allowing our sins to crush us and weigh us down, God carries our sin away from us and to emphasize the wonderful completeness of this, God, God uses three different words to describe sin. They, these are not different sins, but God, God uses three different words to describe the full range of human failure. Wickedness in this translation includes the idea of bias. Like a crown green bowl that has a weight on one side and it always caves when you roll it. It's as if our hearts are bent. And we have this tendency to turn aside from what is right and good. Then there's the idea of rebellion. This is more defiant and deliberate. This, this word literally means breaking away from God and going our own way. And in the light of this narrative, this is not just disobeying God's commands, but betraying the relationship. And then the word sin lastly means 
constantly missing the mark, not living up to what we are meant to be, falling short of the ideal. Take a good long look at this and hear God preach to your own heart as he preached to Moses. Here is a God who is astonishingly kind. This is the God who passed by Moses on Mount Sinai. He is compassionate, gracious, patient, loving, faithful, and forgiving. And think about this. Is he not the God they needed? Only this God could and would save and rescue them. A golden cow certainly isn't any of these things. Only this God was concerned for them. His heart went out to them. He heard their cries. He treated them every day better than they deserved to be treated. He patiently bore with their grumbling and moaning and never gave up on them for a moment. His love was unfailing. His faithfulness was enduring. His forgiveness was huge. We will see later that it will be Jesus, many years later, who fulfills every single thing we've heard God preach here. Jesus is the kindness of God coming to us in human skin. If you think the world could do with a little more kindness, start here. Please don't fall for the lie that God is unkind. And don't, don't create a false God in your own mind. Perhaps some of you have thought in dark moments that God couldn't love someone like you. He can speak for himself. Listen as he describes here who he really is, drawing you to trust him. I've tried to shape our time today like this to make clear that of all our shattered dreams, betraying and being separated from the God who loves us is the worst of all but that even in our darkest moments, he will hear our desperate pleas and show us who he really is. And then we will discover as Moses did, that astonishing kindness really is at the very heart of the character of God.